Several weeks ago, we began a study on uh, the seven churches of Revelation, and I had purposed toward the beginning of those churches that uh, after we finished those, I would uh, segue into uh, a sermon on forgiveness. It seems as though that, uh, you know, the, the Lord had something to say to each of those churches, but it seems like to me that almost in every church, uh, one of the things that's a hindrance to God really working in that church is sometimes we, we carry unforgiving spirits, and uh, it seems to be a barrier from God doing what God wants to do, because there's that roadblock that we put there because our, our hearts are not right with one another. You know, in First John chapter 1, John writes about our fellowship should be with, with one another and with God. It's, it's hard to do that when, when we are just, when there's a roadblock of uh, a heart that's just not bent toward the Lord. So with that in mind, I want, uh, I would like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. And, and this is a little bit longer message today, uh, but uh, I trust that you will forgive me. Uh, but in, in Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him from, and forgave him his debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we need to have clear understanding of what your word says to us. And Father, we need to remove from our hearts any hindrance that would uh, keep you from working uh, in and through us, so that we can accomplish all that you've purposed for us. 
Uh, Lord, as the psalmist cries, I was David cries, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Father, do that for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We call ourselves Christians. And as Christians, we should know that we are free from both the power and the practice of sins. However, there's this thing called the presence of sin or the, uh, the principle of sin that is still lingering in our lives. And every one of us has that problem. You know, we'll, we'll not be free from the, the presence of sin until we get to be with Jesus. But until then, as long as we're breathing air uh, and our blood's being pumped through our bodies, uh, we will have this principle of sin working on us. And occasionally, and maybe more frequently for some as opposed to others, it raises that, that, prin- that sin principle raises its ugly head, <clears throat> excuse me, and it causes us to restrict ourselves from obedience to Christ. And at the same time, that lack of obedience to Christ brings us to a place where we, rather than mere Christ-forgiving spirit, we exhibit a spirit of less compassion, less mercy, and less reconciliation. So, in a way, we really don't look like Christ the way we act. We look just the polar opposite of that. We kind of say we belong to Jesus, but we kind of act like we belong to the devil. Because sometimes we're just, sin just seems to rob us of the joy that we should have, doesn't it? Peter delivers a perfect example of this in verse 21. He, he feels himself to be more generous to offer forgiveness to a person. He says, Lord, should I forgive this person seven times? Now, that's pretty generous. Normally, uh, you know, if somebody, if somebody did something to you, and it was repeated seven times, you might have a tendency not to want to forgive that person. I mean, seven times is a good amount of times, isn't it? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He doesn't mean 490. I mean, you're going to sit there and count, well, that's 487. You're getting close to the limit. I mean, we don't do that, do we? I hope you don't do that. Even perhaps for many today, you know, we would think that seven is generous. When, when you're wronged, and I know that probably every one of us have been wronged somewhere. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're more than a year old, someone's, gonna, someone's wronged you. I mean, that's just part of life. We, all of us have been wronged, haven't we? But when we're wrong, do we think or say, I don't get mad, I get what? Even, there's a lady in the grocery store one day, you, you tend not to want to read what's written on ladies' shirts. I don't know why they do this, but she happened to be there, and she was rather disheveled looking, and she had this uh, t-shirt on, and it said, I don't get mad, I get Even. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want this lady getting mad at me or getting even with me, either one. Because I thought maybe she could beat me up or something. I mean, a... or else we would say things like, uh, 
Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I want to ask you, is that a forgiving spirit? Neither one of those are examples of forgiving spirits, are they? Uh, we, we got a problem when we have a society that thinks it's okay to let people know that we don't forgive very readily. That, that's not a good indicator of what a society should look like, especially a society of believers. That is just the opposite of agape love, where agape love says it keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, are we counting? This is the fifth time, or this is the, the 478th time? Do we count how often our brother or sister has offended us? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 39, Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Perhaps we may find it easier to forgive a brother or sister in Christ if the offense committed against us. It's okay to forgive somebody. In many of our, much of our thinking, if it doesn't hurt our feelings, if it doesn't hurt my feelings, I can forgive him. If it doesn't lessen my dignity, I can forgive him or her. Or in some way, if it doesn't cause me to lose my significance, either in a community, in the culture I live in, the place where I work, or in my church. If, as long as I don't lose my significance, then it's okay. So, Jesus gives us this admonition, and we add these, we, 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 we add to the narrative of it. Beginning at verse 23 of our text, Jesus presents a, a parable to his disciples depicting a king. And this is a parable. This is not a true story. It's a parable. Uh, and much of what's said, if you know what a hyperbole is, you're going to hear words on here that there's no way somebody's going to loan you uh, 10,000 talents of anything. Okay? That's just not going to happen. This is, this is hyperbole. It's a parable. But he's trying to bring a point across. So listen to what Jesus says. He presents this parable to his disciples, depicting a king who wanted to settle a, uh, those accounts from his servants. These, these servants owed him money. So in the course of looking over the books, he finds a particular servant who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000. Now, just so you get a proper perspective of how much that is, it would be in the several billions with a B of dollars. In fact, 10,000 talents is so much one commentator suggested that if you were to equate that in today's economy, it would take him approximately 200,000 years to pay it off. 200,000 years. Who's loaning you this much money? I mean, that's why I say it's a hyperbole. You know, we don't do that. He's trying to get a point across to Peter. How much sin have you been forgiven of? And how much sin are you willing to forgive? That's not a hyperbole. That's reality. 
How much have you been forgiven of, and how much are you willing to forgive? That's the question put to you, the church. We read in Romans 3, 9 that all of us are under sin. All of us are under sin. So we should understand the fact that because we are under sin, that we all owe God a debt so big that we possibly, even in 200,000 years, even in eternity that is to come, we could never, never, never pay what is owed Him. The sin we have is so great, we can never pay it back. There are estimates that a talent, one talent is, I mentioned this a week or two ago, one talent is worth about 75 pounds of whatever, gold or whatever. So think of this, if sin is so great because we sin against a great God, that one sin, one sin, let's just say that it is equivalent to your adding to you 75 pounds of burden. And when you increase that burden, sin after sin, and it keeps on weighing you down. And then when your brother sins against you, your sister sins against you, and you have an unforgiving heart, that what you are doing, folks, is you're adding that spiritual weight to you. You add that burden, that spiritual burden to yourself. And then you begin, after a while, to loathe your brother. And then after you loathe your brother or your sister if you keep on going with that, you begin to loathe yourself. You become a crotchety person. This verse, Romans 3 9, says that we're all under sin. It is indictment against all of us that tells us that we are fully and sufficiently bankrupt when it comes to spiritual rightness. Our spiritual rectitude, our rightness, our honesty before God is somewhat suspect because if we say that we are Christian and yet we will not forgive our brother or sister who is also Christian, who God has forgiven, who is Christian, if you and I are forgiven a great debt, should we not forgive each other of a little debt? Think of this. If God were to demand of us all that is due him, he would be totally justified in doing that, wouldn't he? If he says, I want you to pay back all that's due me, he would be justified in doing that. If that were the case, all of us would be condemned and would receive the and he would receive the glory that is due him in the administration of his divine judgment and justice against us. In verse 25 of our text, this is what we read. His Lord, that is the king, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The king was justified in doing that because the man owed him. Now, This is what is meant by the verse that speaks of the wages of sin. You know the passage that says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Well, this, is, this is what this means. 
those who waste their lives in wicked and intentional wrongdoing make themselves captives waiting for God's judgment. If you continue to sin apart from knowing Christ, apart from knowing Christ, you continue to sin. You make yourself to be a captive to that. And you will finally and ultimately be judged. And you will be judged justly. Not with mercy, but with justice. You'll be judged. And you'll be condemned and consigned to whatever part of Hades God wishes to send you to. Now, do you suppose for even a moment that the servant, his wife, his children, and his possessions would make, up, up, would make enough of a financial payback to the king to make even a debt, a dent into the amount that was owed him? Do you think that if, if he were sold, if his wife were sold, if children were sold, if they sold his furnishings, do you think that would pay back for 200,000 years of debt? wouldn't even make a dent. If you owed billions and billions and billions of dollars, and somebody says, well, we're going to get $3,000 out of that, you'd say, oh, man, I'm losing this deal. Just for you to give some thought to, how could any of us ever give back to God what was due him as a payback as a, for the consequence of our sin? What would you give him? What, what do you possibly have? What do you possess that you could possibly pay God back for the debt of your sin? Friends, God could have righteously, righteously demanded justice to be served from each and every one of us. He could have rightfully consigned us to the fires of hell for the wages of our sin. But by His mercy, He has, re he has released us from payment of our sin. And, and then know this, God does not extend mercy. Listen, God does not, God will not. God never has and God never will ex uh, extend mercy at the expense of of not satisfying justice. You can't do it. If you were standing before a judge, and let's say that you had stolen something, and you were standing before a judge, and a judge looked at you, and you had this kind of look, and he kind of felt sorry for you. Maybe you have to have a better look than I would have. But if you're standing before a judge and, you're, and he's looking at you and he's feeling sorry for you and he extends to you or she extends to you, says, listen, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sentence you to anything. Not probation, community work, nothing. You're free to go. Now, that is merciful, isn't it? Is that justice? No. That's an unjust act. What if the judge looked at this young person 
or older person and said, well, you did the crime. You're not going to pay for it. And he sentences you to whatever term in prison. Is that justice? Is that merciful? You see, you can't do both. You cannot be merciful and just at the same time, but God can. Let me tell you how. What we find in the person of Jesus Christ is one who is foreordained, foreordained by the Father to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world as a substitute for you and I. So that God could then rightly extend to, to, uh, to, to us all both his justice and his mercy. What God did is he takes his son and he condemns his son for the condemnation that we should have. So justice is served by Jesus going to the cross. His death should be our death. His agony, our agony. His blood being shed should be our blood being shed. His pain, our pain. So God sends his son, Jesus takes our place on the cross so that God could exact out all of his justice on his son. And what does God do for you? He gives you mercy. You deserve justice. God gives you mercy. Jesus is condemned. You are declared to be righteous. Jesus dies. You live. Jesus is buried, you're raised to walk in newness of life. Jesus is raised, seated at the Father's right hand, and so are you. Because Jesus is God. God exacts both justice and mercy because of the act of His Son on the cross. No one else could do that. Nobody could do that. No one else could take your sin and say, okay, I'm, Lord, I'm paying back what I owe you. You can't take an imperfect person and make, it, make that person be a perfect sacrifice unless that person is perfect to begin with. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now understand this, here we are, debtors standing before a holy God, condemned, hell-bound, and morally unable to ever repay what we owe Him. God then, in His mercy, sends His Son to be the satisfaction for our sins, to bear His, the Father's wrath, a wrath that was to be against us, is transferred over to God's Son. You see Jesus, you see my sin being born in His body. You see Jesus, you see his righteousness being transferred to me and you. We are, as Christians, justified in the sight of God due to Christ's atoning work on the cross. As the king forgave the debt of the servant, so God forgives the sins of the person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. But now, 
Here is where this parable really hits home for all of us. Because that is what God has done for us. We must ask ourselves this question. What is our, what is my responsibility to others who may happen to offend me or you? What is my, if, if that is what Jesus did for me, then what should I do for others? This very question takes us back to Peter's speaking to Jesus in verse 21, where he says, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? How often? So let's look at verses 28 and 30 of our text. Look at verses 28 through 30. Let me read them. Follow along, please. It says, but that slave went out and found, this is you and I. Okay, put yourself in this servant's position. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow uh, uh, slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. hundred denarii is like a few bucks. The guy owes billions. And the other friend of his owes $20. Think of this. Billions. $20. Okay. It's a good trade-off, isn't it? him a hundred and he sees him and began to choke him, saying, "Pay back what you owe." So his fellow slave fell to the ground, and began to plead with him, saying, "Have patience with me, and I will repay you." Now it's possible to repay that hundred denarius. You know, it's doable. But he was unwilling. Verse thirty says, "And went and threw him into prison until she pay, he should pay back what he owed." There's a kind heart, isn't that? Kind-hearted man. Is it lawful for him? Is it lawful for this unjust servant to ask him to ask his fellow servant to repay him? It's lawful. Is it proper? It is proper. Is it just? It is just. You see, if somebody, if somebody has hurt you, offended you, betrayed you somehow, they did something that just really upset you. If they, if they did, is it proper for you to say, I want, I want compensation? I want compensation for this. Yeah, that's right. It's lawful. It's lawful. It's proper. It's just. It's lawful. But, but, ask yourself this question. Am I demanding something of someone as an act of personal satisfaction and revenge? What another person owes you, do you want recompense because it's going to make you feel better about it? And you have really got him. I really got her. Is that, that's really Christian, isn't it? 
Am I wanting to teach that person a lesson that he or she will never forget? I'll teach you to mess with me. I don't get mad. I get even. I'll teach you. Let me ask you, to what end does this add to our Christian growth and calling? In verses 32 to 35, we see how this parable concludes. The king finds out as to the servant uh, uh, who has forgiven uh, his debt that he has treated another servant with malice, unforgiveness, and vengeful attitude. The one servant is forgiven an immense debt which could never be repaid, and the same servant is unwilling to forgive a fellow servant who owes him but a few dollars. So then, what does the king do? He takes the first guy, the first servant, and he hands him over to the torturers. I want you to think of something. If you owed billions and billions and billions of dollars, and so he says, okay, I'm going to torture you until you pay it back, they ain't going to get it. If all of us together put everything that we owe, all of us put everything, we brought everything in, everything, every dime from our bank account, we sold every position, we couldn't, the combined church couldn't come up with 200,000 years of wages. It's just not feasible. We couldn't do it. Why hand him over to the torturers? Well, I mean, what are they going to get from him? A buck 380? I mean, what are they going to get? We're going to torture you until everything's repaid. I want you all to please pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Take another look at verse 35. In verse 35, it says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if you don't forgive his, your brother from your heart. Right? That's what it says. When you refuse to forgive, there will always be the lingering thought that has settled in your mind that seeks to exact payment for the wrong done. When you're wronged and you don't forgive it, I'm not saying, listen, people say, you got to forgive and forget. Folks, the only way you're ever going to forget, when people say, you got to forgive and forget, forgiveness is one thing, but unless you're going through electrical shock, you're not going to forget. It's there. You know, your mind is like a computer. It's your brain is like a, it's there. But forgiveness says, I'm not going to count this wrong against me. I'm not going to count that wrong against me. You made a mistake. Hey, I made mistakes. That's the Italian. Hey. You know, we make mistakes. We say stupid things and hurt people's feelings. All of us. We're going to take their birthday away? What are you going to do? Hand them over to the torturers. Who's the torturers? You think of this wrong against you all through the day. You dwell on it through the evening. 
You wrestle with it as you restlessly lay your head down to sleep at night. It is always with you. You become emotionally, perhaps even physically exhausted and consumed by it. And it's just as the king said, because you're doing this to yourself. You're doing this to yourself. That unforgiving heart is you. You're, you're torturing yourself. Hand him over to the torturers until he should repay all. It stays with you until you let it go. It's there. Day and night, night and day, week by week and season to season, it is there you torture yourself. And you say, I cannot forgive. I must get what is due me. In his book, The Parables of Jesus, Arlen Haltgren writes, The story is told that in a certain village in Africa, there was a medicine man, not to be confused with a witch doctor. When people came to him due to illness, he did not ask, where is your pain? The question he would ask is, with whom have you had a dispute? If you want to get well, first you must take care of your relationship with that other person. You must forgive. You must be reconciled. That's good doctrine, isn't it? When we give thought to Jesus' words in verse 35, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you. That does not mean that God will act in the same way as the king did in this parable. He's not going to unforgive you. <laughs> You're torturing yourself. He don't need to do that. You're already beating yourself up. He's not going to reverse his forgiveness. It is more like this. The person that is unwilling to grant pardon or forgiveness toward a brother or sister may not have ever truly had their sins forgiven to begin with. If you're really a Christian, how could you possibly, it, it doesn't even make sense to me, how could you possibly harbor such hatred to a brother and sister Day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. How, could, how is that possible when you know that God has forgiven you for all the great sin you've committed? You, you took his son and you nailed him up there. You, me, we put him up there. And somebody comes by and says, hey, Baldy, and you're offended by this? There must be in a Christian, there must be in that transformed heart, there must be a moral and mental change that has taken place. It speaks of your character. That's who you, when you say you're Christian, you're telling me, you're telling others that there's a moral and mental change that's taken place taking place in your heart and the character that now lives in you is the attitude of Christ indwelling you it is Christ in you that hope of glory that when someone offends you that you're as easy to forgive as you can possibly be 
You cannot harbor resentment toward your brother or sister. That's not Christian. It's not Christ-like. Your willingness to forgive is a product of your first being forgiven by God. Whatever you in the past have experienced, whatever hurt, whatever heartache, or whatever betrayal event is not even close, not even a fraction of what sin Christ bore that belonged to us. Not even close. As we have just gone through the seven churches in Revelation. Have you ever thought about this? We went through seven churches. Of those seven, seven churches, four of them, four of them were told that they need to repent. You know, you know what, what repentance is? If you're walking in a wrong direction, it's realizing, hey, I'm going in the wrong direction. I need to go this direction. Okay? What unforgiveness is, what unforgiveness is, is you're walking in the wrong direction and you come to the realization that I got to go this way. Because if I keep on walking in an unforgiving spirit, with an unforgiving spirit, then I'm, I've just sent myself over to the torturers. I'm killing myself. Friends, go back the other way. It's simple. There's no one keeping you from doing this. Is there? Hey, I'm walking with Jesus now. I'm walking to the cross. You walk this way, you walk away from it. Turn around. Oh, I'm forgiven. I can forgive you. Does that make sense? You know, Jesus didn't make it hard. He made it simple, but we make it hard because we're torturing ourselves. Seven churches, repent. Um, four churches say, repent, repent, repent. I ask, what are we willing to do in order to bring repentance, renewal, revival, restoration, reconciliation? What other R word can you think of? Bring that to our church. What do we need to do? If there is unforgiveness... It must be dealt with. And if there is unforgiveness, listen closely. Do you hear on the door of the church? And because your heart is hardened toward a brother or sister, that fellowship with God will never be there. Because as long as this is going on, and the hardest of your heart is going on, Jesus can keep on knocking because you're never going to unlock the door for him. When you decide, I love my brother and sister as Christ loved me, even if they have wronged me, love keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that what Paul tells the church of Corinth? Love keeps no record of wrongs. So, I've been wronged, but you know what? I've wronged the person on that cross. And he forgave me. I'm going to forgive my brother. I'm going to forgive my sister. And we're going to do what 1 John says. We're going to have fellowship with God, and we're going to have fellowship with one another.
you'll see revival take place in your church when your heart search me O God and know my heart try me and see if there be any anxious thought within me then we'll have renewal restoration revival reconciliation repentance in the church is Christ knocking at the door and will we let him in with a clean, pure, forgiven, forgiving heart. In Matthew's gospel, coming to a close here, in Matthew's gospel we have Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, verses, chapters 5, 6, and 7. But in that, in that sermon, Jesus gives six antithetical statements. An antithetical statement, is, it's, it goes like this. You have heard, but I say. So you got... This as opposed to this, the antithesis, one end to the other end, the antithesis. So one of these statements is found in chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, where Jesus equates anger as being like murder. You're angry at your brother, you killed him. That's what Jesus says. Anger is like murder. He says in verses 30 and 39, he says, you know what, someone... Offer him the other one. Well, we don't want to be slapped, do we? And still another addresses the fact that we are to love those who oppose us. Oh, good night. We got, we got opposition all over the place, don't we? I don't like this guy. Well, maybe pray for him. Prayer's good. Not P-R-E-Y, P-R-A-Y. He's not tomorrow's lunch. So let's ask ourselves, is this a picture of me? Am I angry at my brother or sister in Christ? Am I willing to turn the other cheek when I feel as though someone took away my dignity or my significance? Am I being a loving person even if I think I'm being opposed? One last question. This is the hardest question that I'll ever ask you. Are you willing to forgive that person? Are you willing? There's a box at the foot of that cross. You have received a bulletin, and in that bulletin you've received like a quarter sheet of paper. You all see it? Okay. You, you all are not going to do this. Some of you may. I doubt if all will. I mean, you could. But if you want to put down, I forgive. Only if you mean it. Only if you mean it. I forgive. And put the name. I want, I'll, I'll promise you this. I will not read it. No one will read these. They will not be kept. They will not be posted. Immediately after following the service, I will take them. After you put, I, I forgive, you put their name on here, you fold it in half like this, you walk up here, fold it in half like this, you're going to take it, this is the person, this is the person you're torturing yourself over. Jesus forgives them, you forgive them. At the close of the service, 
we will take them, we will take them, we will shred them. No one will ever see them. But I'm going to tell you, if you're torturing yourself, if you're torturing yourself, today will be your first day when you go, to, when you go home today. Take a nap. Rest your mind, rest your heart. Jesus sank the door and knocked. He said, come on in, Jesus. We're going to have fellowship together. I'm having fellowship with my brother and my sister. I'm going to have fellowship with you. Would you do that today? One other thing. Most important thing. If there is someone here, if there is one person here even that does not know Jesus, You're not standing in forgiveness. You're standing in condemnation. Get yourself right with Jesus today. As you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, opening your heart up to understand that you need to have a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ. Say, Jesus, I want you in my life. You can do that right you're seated, but I'm going to ask you to do something. When people are coming up here to put their slips of paper in that box... Would you come up and let me know that today you come to know Jesus? Because we want to celebrate with you. As God's angels celebrate the fact that you come to know Jesus, we want to celebrate too. We're a fellowship. We're a family of God's people. Let us celebrate with you. What a wonderful thing has transpired in your life. As you hear the music being played, if you would please stand. Let's all stand. As God moves you to write down a name, drop it in a box, fold it in half. No, no one is going to read it. I will not, nobody's going to read these papers. I promise you. They'll be shredded at the close of the service. It's this between you and God. As, as the music is being played, you come up and do what you need to do as God directs you.